Packet Pusher sponsor Tufin has pioneered a policy-based approach to network security management using automation and analytics. As a result, you can make network changes in minutes instead of days, reliably and securely. Tufin, the security policy company. Visit them at www.tufin.com and tell them the Packet Pusher sent you. This episode is sponsored in part by Thousand Eyes. Thousand Eyes gives you visibility, insights, and actionable intelligence into user experience from every user to every application over any network. So you transform your WAN, troubleshoot faster, and deliver exceptional user experiences in the cloud and on-premises. Try Thousand Eyes for free at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers and snag a fun t-shirt. Thousand Eyes. Thrive in a connected world. A discussion came up on the Packet Pushers audience Slack channel. Greg shared some slides from 1999, where some of the same points he raised 20 years ago are still true today. Why is networking so slow to change? And that's going to be the focus of our discussion. I'm Ethan Banks, and with me is Greg Farrow. We are your lovable co-hosts for today's episode. And joining us is Emma Cardinal Richards, Senior Network Architect at University College in London. This is her first time appearing on Heavy Networking. And also joining us is Jeremy Philippen, who should... Jeremy, you should get some frequent flyer miles or something for coming on the show so many times over the years. Jeremy is the owner, consultant, instructor at Pristine Packets, and you might know him as a CCDE trainer. So please welcome both Emma and Jeremy into your earbuds, dear listener, and let's get into our discussion on what it is about networking that makes it slow to change. Slow to evolve, maybe, is a good word. And uh, and Greg, I think you're the right person to open this show up today. you got to talk through some of the points you raised 20 years ago that are amazingly still relevant today. Well, 20 years ago, I used to work for a reseller who shall remain nameless, and I was required to prepare these talks and to go up on stage in front of a room of two or 300 people and talk about how something that would encourage people to ask questions. And the goal was to ask questions so that leave the questions unanswered so that they would come back to us and then buy stuff from us, right? So once you've got a sale. So these questions are very open-handed. And um, maybe what we'll do is we'll post these uh, I'll redact these slides so that the, the confidential information is gone, but we'll post them in the blog post, I think, Ethan. Yeah, that'd be good. Yep. yep. Yeah, we good. We can take out the preference. And basically what I said was back in 1999, here are the business issues. We've got to get to lower overheads. We've got to get to more automation, more e-commerce, and get to a point where transactions can be completed without human intervention. That is, operating the network needs to be more automated. And in 1999, I said our network needs to be more reliable. Currently, we have really poor reliability. And we um, consider manufacturing and telcos use Six Sigma reliability, but in networking, we don't. And we've also got to be more flexible. It's got to change faster than the business. <laughs> My point has always been is that <laughs> – now, does that sound very familiar? I'm just laughing because it sounds incredibly <laughs> familiar. Oh, my word. <laughs> When I stumbled across this, I instantly sent you this deck and your reaction was, oh my God, you're right. And I just couldn't believe that fundamentally the podcast that I'm doing in 2019 isn't exactly, these are the key talking points that we throw out in many of our shows 20 years later. Nothing has changed. And so that... uh you ended up sharing these slides in Slack, and then uh, we ended up with a, a little conversation going around. Why has been? Why has networking been uh, so slow to change? Uh, and and there's, there's a lot of reasons. And if you're out there in network engineering listening to this, you, you, there's probably things percolating into your mind. But uh, let's get our guests on the mic here. And uh, Jeremy, uh, starting with you, you had a bunch of uh, thoughts on this that uh, would help help start our discussion. Yeah. So. I mean, it has changed a lot, right? The networking since 99, which is roughly when I started too, Greg. So we uh, were similar vintage, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was but, actually, I'd actually been in the industry for a few years by then, but that's not the end of there. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. I think, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, but I was starting to realize what was going on, I think, by the, by the late 90s. I mean, it's changed a lot, but you're right. The needs, right? The the where should we take things seems to be the same place. It's like uh, like we set a direction back then, and we just haven't uh, haven't gotten there very quickly, right? That's kind of my my view on it as well. I guess the main thing for my own um, experiences, what I've noticed is that the requirements is what drives where we take the network and. We haven't, at least in my personal experience, we haven't had a lot of difference in requirements since the, the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Uh, two of everything in terms of redundancy, make sure things are up. 
speed has increased, but not so much so that things have changed in the last you know ten or so years, right? At the access layer, at least in like a campus environment, you know, we we got the gigabit. Uh, I'm going to say, gosh, good 12, 13 years ago, depending on your company, right? Mid two thousands to to twenty ten. I haven't seen demand for for more bandwidth since then at the access layer. Yeah, I, I mean, I was layer. reading a, I was reading something recently from some one of the fathers of networking, you know, one of the godfathers of networking, and he was sort of making the point that really since 1999, the only thing that networking has done is gotten faster. So we've gone from one meg to ten gig, and that's really about it. Nothing else has changed. We still use the same protocols, the same standards bodies. Even the standards that we use haven't dramatically changed. Like, if you consider, when I say dramatically changed, I would say the transition from petrol-powered cars to electric cars is a dramatic change. There's a fundamental shift there. But in networking, we still run BGP like it's some tablet handed down from 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 the mount and people and getting people to let it go is incredibly difficult they just can't even imagine moving on and yes it still works okay yes and yes it's it's still wonderful yes it is but so is petrol powered cars but it is time to move on i think now emma you might be the youngest one amongst the dinosaurs here but mm-hmm. is that kind of your viewpoint too yeah i mean that that's i think what shook me when i saw the slide deck because i was thinking how can the things that again i'm still like I'm talking about implementing and, and progressing with now, we're being talking to spoken about that that long ago. It sounds like I'm being a bit rude to you guys, but no, really not that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, like the automation was the one that threw me because in my head, that to me sound, feels like something that's much more recent in the networking field. So the fact that actually, no, we have been talking about it for this long, kind of it shook me a little. Um, that why then have we not achieved these aims if these are things that we've been you know trying to do for this long how comes we haven't achieved it yet but i think what you were saying about the the campus and the changes i don't know if this is just when you're working institutions with kind of researchers and things like that that actually those sort of changes with speeds and things are happening and networks have been we've been traditionally a little bit slow to respond and although things have been ticking along and working well and everything's kind of pretty stable, doesn't fall over a lot, that now people are expecting more and we're not ready to, you know, quickly yeah. roll over and be able to produce that. I wonder, one of the arguments I've heard people say is that networking doesn't matter. So that one of the arguments that I would take in one of my more cynical moments and searching for inspiration is to say that networking doesn't matter. We don't although the only thing that we've ever needed to give the users of our networks is more bandwidth and all the other things that we do are actually pointless because if you look at the history of networking over the last 20 years the only thing that we've delivered that is sustainably beneficial to our to the customers of our businesses which is networking users is more bandwidth and we haven't needed to do sdn we haven't needed to move from petrol to electric there's been no true innovation there's been lots of futzing at the edges you know there's been no industry-wide driver for these things because you can look at certain companies like say at&t for example they've been very public about how much they've invested in open source a lot of that to drive software to find networking with peculiar needs to their service provider and other network service offerings that they offer on a global scale but do most companies need that no but see i'd argue you're saying that networking doesn't matter i think it doesn't matter when it's working great and providing what they need Mm. so all those things that may be perceived as not mattering to the end user yeah i don't think they care how it gets to them but it has to get to them and it has to be you know everywhere they need it as fast as they need it with no kind of barriers to entry so those those extra things those you know our sdns and the kind of other things we could do is to enable those services to make them available so it should it should appear like magic to them but we've got to use these things Mm. to make that easier for us to manage and provide those services yeah, uh, I, I agree with Emma. The, our goal should be for networking not mm-hmm. to matter, right? The, in most organizations, if networking matters, it means you're not doing your job right. Not, mm-hmm. not you personally, of course, but but the engineer in general, uh, it just isn't doing their job right. They're either trying to, they're making this more complex than it needs to be, or they, I've seen organizations where they just don't have the funding to make the network not matter because 
bandwidth is too expensive for them or redundancy is an issue. So that would fly in the face of what our vendors are telling us. Right now, I've got all these vendors up in my email inbox trying to tell me that the network as a service is the thing. We've got network functions virtualization. We've got SD-WAN. We've got cloud scanning engines. We've got cloud points. They are trying to tell us that network as a service And yet what we're saying here is really the only thing that matters is more bandwidth. So there's a tension there between how do we make the network useful and if we can't, how do we accept that? How do we explain to our vendors that there is no service you can give us that matters? You're just wasting my time and my money. Just give me a cheap, simple device. Let's move on. Well, it, it, no, there's too many things that have been pushed down into the network, though, that, that vendors are monetizing and that's uh, that a lot of customers believe that they want the network to do these things, like security. It's becoming increasingly difficult to have a conversation about the network that is a purely transport speed-oriented conversation because security, filtering, um, redirecting traffic for inspection via some sort of service chain is all become part and parcel of what's going on. You've got VMware out there talking about making everything in the network pure a software function. That all reminds me back of James Hamilton's uh, infamous, famous talk about the network is just in my way. So Mm. there's this move, I think, to make the network not matter, not because it doesn't matter, but because people are tired of it being a holdup in the process of delivering applications. Mm. Definitely. I mean, I've I've definitely experienced that, the, the kind of lack of automation or, or virtualization in our in the networking space becomes this kind of bottleneck in the process and then you get people wanting to circumvent it hence where you're kind of getting things like the nsx you know puts so we're gonna you guys are too slow so we're just gonna do our networking for ourselves on the side here so vmware's nsx I don't care what your data center looks like. I'm just going to go over the top of it. I don't want to have to deal with the physical underlay. We think it's too hard and too complicated. And I think VMware could have, you know, done something with the underlay and attached to it, but they just decided that that was not a fight that they were going to have. And they've just been telling their customers, give me enough bandwidth in the data center and it just doesn't matter. We're just going to deliver the services. We're not going to do the connectivity. I'd say at the the time NSX was being developed, Networking was still hard, right? Data center networking was not easy to do. Uh, we, were- we, we sent an infrastructure engineer with a network engineer on an NSX course, and that was his, like, when he came back, it was like, wow, networking is really complicated. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but complicated, and there were very few people in the industry who actually could do it, uh, especially mm-hmm. data center networking. I'm talking that 2008 to 2012 timeframe uh, when we were going off in different directions like Fabric Path and mm-hmm. Trill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it Spanning Tree? Is it uh, large MLAG bundles that we need to do to, to solve this data center networking problem? Um, and uh, kind of ironically, it looks like we chose all of the above, um, but <laughs> but somehow it became a little bit easier, right? We we can now solve that problem of I've got all these links and they're all blocked. So you know, even though I have you know X times ten gigabit or X times forty or even nowadays a hundred gigabit in my data center, you know, really everything runs over that one cable there because everything else is blocked. We've we've kind of solved that problem, and and I think that that I don't want to say it makes something like NSX or the over-the-top sort of solutions unnecessary now, but it's probably less critical to have them uh, than it used to be. Well, NSX has moved to alpha the services that I was talking about. So it's now said connectivity, that's that's peanuts. What we need is firewalls and we need automated, you know, if this server has this name, then this policy is applied to it. We need load balancing. Well, I don't want to need to go and get a load balancer to do that. I'll just turn it into software in the vSwitch. Um, you know, those types of things are all coming in and things that used to be hardware devices become software devices become functions. So there is a bundling happening in the software vSwitch. It's happening very slowly. Um, the number of people who are taking up NSX as a load balancer is not high and listening to the Kubernetes people scream about load balancers and how hard it is is quite sweet. I must say that's like uh, listening to the screams of the damned and being the devil going. <laughs> <laughs> it's an echo 20 years later, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. All those years of them going, you people don't know what you're doing. This load balancer can't be that hard. And I'm going, like, well, yeah, it is. But, but the funny thing about all of this is that it, still the boring bit matters. The the plumbing, as I like to call it, like it still matters. The hard, the underlay is still there, and that's it, it can't be forgotten. 
It, it, it absolutely matters, yeah. And then we end up with um, discussions with vendors about reference architectures. Jeremy, going back to your point earlier on this, where you said, well, we've kind of chosen all of the above. There's some trill fabrics out there, and there's some layer three fabrics out there, and there's some VX laying over the top, and you know a whole bunch of people are doing a whole lot of things. Maybe that's another part of the puzzle. There's instead of kind of one or two, maybe three different versions of of a network you'd see out there, and everyone could talk about the core aggregation access layer network that we've all worked on. Now you kind of don't know what you're walking into. Um, and so it's evolved, but not in a continuous way. It's kind of spread out and fractured in 12 different directions. Is, is, this the, is this the kind of that phase? We're in this messy where everyone doesn't know which horse to back, so we're backing them all kind of mess. And then maybe in like five years' time, the dust will have settled and the, the ones that actually worked or people will emerge, you know, victorious. I see it more as a lack of competency. I think the widespread lack of skill and people who actually, um, I think the trap that a lot of people have fallen into is they go and do these certifications and come out the other end feeling like they're, that's all they need to know. And when the transition comes along and things happen that they don't know, so so many people did NP, you know, a Cisco CCNP or a mid-level certification, learned some OSPF and some, you know, VLANs and some spanning tree and some BGP and so forth. And now SDN comes along and makes all that, just to a large extent, irrelevant. So if you're running a Meraki network, how much of that stuff do you actually need to know? Almost none if you're just deploying Meraki. Um, so the question is, if you start to throw at them, you need to know Fabric Path, you need to know, uh, you know, eBGP to do an eVPN, you're going to run Lisp in the campus. They're not well prepared to make that transition. And that lack of competency does worry me overall. We, we seem to be in in an environment now where you choose your vendor and then that determines your design. Yes. Um, you know, if you pick Arista, you're going to be an eVPN shop. If you pick Cisco right now and you're willing to be on the, on the edge, right, you're going to be an ACI SD access shop. Um, and I'm sure I could come up with other examples. Feel free. Hmm. Um, but, but yeah, you're, you're picking your vendor before you're picking your design and then it'd be foolish to then, try to make Arista do something they don't want to do or try to make Cisco use a design they don't, you know, they don't use as a reference architecture anymore. So, so Greg, I think uh, I agree with Jeremy here. I, I don't think your point is wrong. I think it's right. Although I think phrasing it a lack of competency makes it sounds like the people working on networks are all idiots. Um, but <laughs> so I would phrase it more. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is there, there is a where you're trying to the lack of skills or the different skill set skill sets that are needed. There, so there's there's like, a diff between what in their current technology. Yes, I'm not saying people are incompetent. Yeah. I'm saying yeah. they lack new skills or capabilities capabilities even a lack of vision to be able to see mm. where the network um so this might be but, a good but, time like i as part of the prep for this i put together a, a taxonomy of networking i say i see networking having nine generations at this point and we're currently in the fifth generation moving into the sixth and i'll, I'll write a blog post that sort of lays this out and we sort of moved through this uh, version one, which was back in the in the mid '80s, was connecting local hosts to so LAN. So the first Ethernet LANs or the first SDLC LANs, three mainframes on a wire sort of thing, and then we went through a scale increasing. So it went from multi LAN, multi protocol. So we went Apple Talk IPX, and then repeaters, hubs and bridges and routers, point to point WANs. And then the third phase was when we started having static virtualization, or what I call static virtualization, which was VLANs, because VLANs is a is a is a virtualization technology, as was Frame Relay. Early MPLS, we went to point to multipoint, um, and saw the end of the point to point circuits as you know frame relay moved from PV moved to PVCs. I miss um, you, Delcys. Yeah, yeah Delcys. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then we moved into what I call the universal connectivity, which was the internet, and then subsequently mobile, uh, which is where we are now. Anybody can connect to the network pretty easily. Network security is fairly well understood. Static segmentation remains the name of the game. And we pretty much standardized around BGP DNS, you know, and IP. All the other product protocols have gone. And then we're moving into the next generation now, software operations. So, uh, you know, where it's APIs, controllers, applications, basic programmability, and I mean basic. We are barely touching the, the, the early stages. Device operations are moving to APIs and moving away from CLIs. CLIs will never disappear, but we're transiting to using APIs. And we're also seeing the emergence of serious attempts to make analytics and telemetry systems come 
And that's kind of where we are now. But each of those is a five to 10 year phase. And why is it that networking takes so long to move through those phases from, you know, connecting hosts on a LAN to adopting a WAN to be connecting to the internet to now just starting to accept software operations as normal? Is there something? Well, so th there's one major point I can make here on, on this, Craig, that, that's, I think, at the root of this. And it is primarily driven by vendors creating a solution that they think they can sell and then us buying it. But that solution having being a lot more proprietary than it used to be. If I go back 10 years ago, if you had a switch or a router that uh, ran comparable protocols, um, they were interoperable by and large. Now we're building fabrics with devices that have all these peculiarities and interoperability requirements and a controller that make the whole system somewhat locked out, unique, and probably not interoperable. So you described the version four, universal connectivity. Um, you know, kind of what most of us are familiar with if we were to look at our networks. There's an internet connection, there's some NatPak going on a firewall, we're doing what you described as static segmentation between different chunks of the network. We're using BGP for routing, maybe OSPF, there's DNS and so on. The next phase that many of us are trying to get to APIs, programmability, using a controllers, applications that drive what the network looks like. But to get to that phase is complicated because, and again, going back to Jeremy's point and, and my vendor point, Everything that's being given to us to facilitate programmability is unique by vendor. There is no API cohesion uh, across the net, uh, across uh, vendors. There is no standard that's been there. No new tablets that have been handed down, Greg, um, yeah. with what the APIs are going to look like. And so it's not you know, getting there is so fractured. There's no standard way to approach it anymore. Going back to your competency point, how do you get competent in programmability when? To some degree, it's using the language and redefining workflows and process, but also there are wide differences in what you're, how you actually do that programming when you interact with different devices. I think that really slows the process down and, and makes it slow, all underscored by the point, if the network blows up as much as we don't want the network to matter, when it blows up, it really matters a lot and the blast radius is huge. Everybody's nervous and anxious do you really want to pull that lever and make a big change so so what i find really interesting about your taxonomy here and em and i get the advantage of seeing it early here is that at each phase we go wide and then we consolidate so the one i first lived through was the multi-protocol multi-lan architecture phase right where we it, we didn't know if token ring or fiddy or ethernet or atm lean was going to win right and so you could specialize in one or more likely the, the one that your employer chose is the one that you know. But yeah, I mean, one of the smartest people I knew in networking at that time was a gentleman named Kennedy Clark. And he worked, uh, we worked together for a brief period of time at a consulting firm. And uh, he decided he was going to write the, uh, the Bible the Cisco press Bible on ATM lane. And, um, you know, that, that was a, that was a false start, right? Uh, not that, not that it affected his life or career. I think he did well after that anyway, but you know, goodness, that, that turned out to be a, a you know, a, a dead end path and he had to back up and, and probably put some effort into ethernet, right. Or, or something else. Um, oh God, I put, I put three years of my life into ATM lane. Yeah. <laughs> Literally I was, yeah. So you I, probably I still remember some of those. Yeah, you know, some yeah. of it's still back there, right? Um, in the um, back of your mind. I try, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be surprised, you know, what you'd remember if uh, somebody started quizzing you. Uh, but the, the point being that uh, it, you know it wasn't a bad idea for for Kennedy to to go down that path. It's just it turned out to be the wrong choice. I advise people, and this is going to sound terrible, but I advise people to just sit back and wait and and see what wins before you get too excited about going down a path. No, um, I, I agree. Uh, that's that's my kind of fear with some of these these solutions that the um, vendors are giving out being tied in so tightly to specific hardware, which seems the antithesis of software-defined networking. But I, I don't want to be part of that until we're sure that that is right. And that's the tricky part because then you're kind of stuck okay. in that phase before. Let me throw you a counter argument. One of the things that you could say is that the pace of change is picking up. So if we look back at, say, the version one of this taxonomy where it was just physically connecting three or four computers together, that was almost a 10 or a 12 year. And yet now the software operations phase is probably five years long. 
and the shift to dynamic virtualization might be a lot shorter, maybe three to five years. If the pace picks up as we go through these changes, you may actually miss the opportunity to deliver a benefit to the business if you wait too long. So one one of the and I would also make the point that part of the reason that networking is so backward is because we don't change, we don't change. Yeah, that's what I wondered if there was, especially with, I was thinking with, with network engineers themselves, like if it's a kind of almost like a chicken and egg situation where you you started out in tech, you're ready to do sort of shiny new things all the time, and then you were drawn to or you ended up in a field where it didn't change for ages you were doing the same thing over and over again and you got comfortable and and happy you knew what you knew where you were you knew what you had to do each day you knew how to configure vlan you know and that's it you're happy and now suddenly stuff is being thrown at you saying right now you need to know you need to be a programmer and you're like well no why i've been i'm happy don't don't mess with my happiness leave me alone so So that's what it feels like if you read, there's a report out from the State of DevOps, which has been, um, uh, Nicole's Forgren is very, uh, it's great reading. And one of the points that they make in that report about the State of DevOps is that the companies who make more changes are faster to recover. So they've actually done statistical sound science, statistical science, surveying companies, interviewing companies and talking about this. And what they've learned is, but they're talking about it from a DevOps point of view, but my point would be is that it's easily translatable into NetOps or networking, is that companies who do, you know, 10 deploys a day actually have less failure overall or less time in failure because it's well-practiced. They practice failing and recovering from failing, whereas in networking, we've gone the other way. We work so hard to prevent failure that when failure happens, it takes far too long to recover because we don't actually know what to do. But does that go back to Ethan's point before about the kind of blast radius of networking that to be able to change quickly, if you've got a really large enterprise network, that's almost impossible to do Mm. without causing big outages or problems like that that would be very impactful to the the rest of the business. And so many of the new technology deployments uh, that we hear are done in a semi-greenfield way. That is, yeah, we're going to stand up a whole new pod and then begin moving compute over to it because we can't just upgrade what you got. That would be too complicated, too risky. But that could also lead to laziness. No, stay- I, no, I don't think it's lazy. I think it, 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 you have to, because of the, the sort of dramatic changes we're thinking about here, that to get people comfortable, that's the problem. It's, it's so far out of comfort, their comfort zone that they have to kind of do it in this little pod, in this little silo to prove it works, to prove it's fine. You know, the, the perception I've had is that sometimes that people are, you know, think a script if it, or a, you know, a piece of automation can change something across your whole network, then it can break your whole network really quickly. And counter argument is obviously yes, but then you can also fix it really quickly. Depending on what you just broke, but yeah. We're going to pause this podcast conversation for just a moment to hear from sponsor Tufin, the security policy company. As enterprises embrace digital transformation and adopt new technologies, IT and cloud environments become increasingly complex and vulnerable to attack. In this environment, the network change process can become a security-driven bottleneck. Tufin has pioneered a security policy management platform to bring automation and analytics to security and network operations. With Tufin's policy-driven automation, each change can be implemented in minutes instead of days, removing the chance of human error. This can significantly accelerate the development and deployment of revenue-generating apps, providing tangible business value in the nearer term, all while securing the network. How does Tufin deliver on these promises? In at least four ways. One, end-to-end security change automation. Automate access changes across enterprise firewalls and hybrid cloud platforms to increase productivity and eliminate misconfigurations. Two, unified security policy. Define and enforce a central zone-based segmentation matrix to strengthen security posture and meet regulatory mandates. Three, compliance and audit readiness. Ensure compliance with corporate security policies and external industry regulations with a central console for real-time change tracking, including who made the change, when and why, a complete audit trail and audit-ready reports. Four, a single pane of glass for managing security policy. Tufin Central Console provides policy analysis, 
search and optimization capabilities across vendors and platforms, and features an interactive topology map of the network. Tufin, the security policy company. Visit them at www.tufin.com and tell them the Packet Pusher sent you. And now, back to the show. It, it strikes me that I agree with you that the reality is that our networks are so fragile that doing something to them might actually require an outage that has high level, like uh, a very large blast radius. But it's a shame that after 20 or 30 years of networking, we still can't design a network where the blast radius is. But is it, is it, is it um, the design or fragility or is it just the complexity that's built up over time? Do, mm. do networks just grow organically? So you you know you know all these we don't have green that many greenfield sites anymore. We've got legacy brownfield sites that have built up over time, and mm. little bits over here have kind of and they're not always uniform because we weren't using things like automation or like So you'll have differences everywhere. There's, there's another piece of this though. I think, uh, we, Greg, to go back to your point, can't we just design a network that's robust and not so fragile? Yeah, if we had infinite budget. I've been in so many conversations where the design that resulted was simply, we don't have enough money to put the ideal solution out there that would give us all that redundancy. We got we can't spend another 50 grand or 100 grand. You know, the cost of networking hardware is astronomical. And therefore, you end up in a compromised situation where you do your best, but there's still spoffs in the network, and you, you, you don't have the opportunity to take that redundant piece of gear down because it isn't there. You've only got the one thing. That's all you were able to put into production. So I've seen the opposite problem, which, which is probably more unfortunate, but <clears throat> where the budget's available – but if the the things that are built on top of the network, if the applications, if um, if those aren't built in such a way that they can be resilient to even uh, you know minor failures, you know the the loss of a switch port or the reboot of a single network device, uh, you know if they're going to crash anyway, it, it doesn't do us much good to invest all that time and money into it being ultra redundant. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, something's plugged into a switch port and that switch port will occasionally go down during maintenance or during outages. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has seen that. Uh, no, that yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, you, the way it's sometimes come across is it's the importance of the application. So if then this, that's what will indicate how much money might get spent on making it resilient or putting in a resiliency from an application perspective, not just the networking. But if it's not that important or perceived as not being that important then it's like oh well we'll just if we lose the data center we'll lose the application it's yeah. not that important it doesn't happen that mm. often and most you know that is real most of the time that is true but the sometimes when it does happen they suddenly realize oh actually oh, no it's way more important than we thought it was it's not trivial to design your application to survive a site failure or a data center outage um and and the level of effort and time and, and especially money that goes into that, you know, is it, it doesn't make sense to do it for every application. Mm. Um, most most of the environments that I work with, you know, we we build that level of resiliency at the infrastructure layer. Um, you know, we effectively promise, you know, if this data center is down, the other data center will be up. Yeah. Um, and and most of the time, and in fact, I would say, you know, well into the the nines, right, the five nines, etc. We make that promise a reality. Um, but, uh, but again, if things above it aren't built to take advantage of that, then kind of, in some ways, why do we bother? Um, but in others, you know, it's it's unfortunate. It's, it's sometimes it's just unfortunate because it will be inherent in the application design itself that it's just not geared up to, you can offer the you can offer them the, the perfect infrastructure archetype to support it. But if the application can't actually, you know, do that sort of shared state, you're you're stuck. But the RCA still says network outage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. I said same power outages. You know. Oh, it's network fault. <laughs> but the lights are off. It doesn't matter. It's the network's fault. Yeah. Yeah. The network went down because the, yeah. the power was taken away. Yeah. All right. Let's pause here for a second, since we're all uh, since we all paused here for a second anyway. <laughs> so okay. Um, are we gone? Are we gone off on too many tangents? No. I think these are all. They are points that don't have answers, but uh, or, or not all clear answers. Mm. But um, they're all things that I, I wanted us to discuss and get out there yeah, uh, I mean, for where, sure. Where it comes for me, and, and I don't know if we're recording or not, but feel free to. Um, but 
where it comes down to to me is business requirements and i know that's uh you know for for folks who are familiar with the ccd certification i'm not trying to be a shill for cisco's design certification but but it does make you think in terms of business requirements right we you know we we like to build networks because you know we think networks are interesting and cool or at least at one point in our career we did that's why we got into <laughs> it right? um, i still do but um but i'll be a cynic a little bit here uh but that's why we got into it um but why do companies pay us to do it, right? That's the real question. And, and it's to meet their requirements. Uh, so, you know, if their requirements are to have a, an incredibly stable, um, resilient network, uh, nowhere in that does that say, hey, automate that thing. Um, you know, the automation either helps us do our jobs or, you know, it's like a force multiplier for us to be able to get more done with fewer resources. Um, but if you're not being pushed by your employer to either cut headcount or to scale this network up to a point that you can't manually manage it any longer, um, what's the driver to go to automation anyway? I guess what you're driving at there is um, a lot of networking is good enough. Once it's fast enough and stable enough, uh, you know, we talk about fragility and blast radiuses, but in reality, most companies are happy to accept the way things are. They've got a spanning tree and they've got some switches in their data centers and they don't actually care for all the new stuff because it's good enough as it is until it blows up or until something, you know, perturbs the state. Yeah, that's a succinct way of saying the same thing I said. I appreciate you summarizing <laughs> it better than I did. Um, you're 100% right. I mean, that's that's exactly the way to think about it, though, right? Once yeah. you have once you have a good enough network that meets the requirements of the business, you know, why are you messing with it? Well, that's, that's one way to look at it, though. But we could flip this on its head and say that the argument for automation is because for the sorts of networks that some of the vendors want to sell us, let, let's, let's say Cisco DNA, you couldn't do it by hand. It's too friggin' complicated. You need to have automation and programmability with a software layer on top that makes the network do all the things. I guess I'm specifically talking about um, security functions uh, especially and to make the network do all of that stuff. If you tried to actually lay all that out by hand, you couldn't, and so you rely on automation to make that happen. So it becomes a definition of when is that network actually good enough? And if Cisco's rocking up with the account rep saying, hey, you guys should invest in DNA because reasons, and you know, if, if someone decides those are compelling reasons, um, would you want to implement it by hand? You would not. You would you would rely on automation to actually make it happen or forget about it. But is that the thing that's also this, this we're, you know, we're talking about like networking being slow moving is it because we just to say oh well it's it's good enough so why do i need to do anything does it you're saying does does it need to evolve well but that, that but that's what I'm, I'm i'm sort of querying is that true when we say it's good enough is what's our definition of good that it's up is that is that actually good enough i think it's a business by business question that needs to be asked and you know, for, for many, many companies, the, the current state of networking is good enough. Um, I'm sure there's a subset that need to push the boundaries, you know, due to scale or due to interesting requirements or, or something. Um, but you're kind of, you're, you're pushing a button, uh, uh, Ethan, that, uh, that I'm a little apprehensive about uh, responding to, but I'll do it anyway. Why not? Um, and that is, you know, who's asking for DNA Center? <laughs> And feel free to edit that out if uh, you don't want to no, no, no. I mean, it's 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 a valid question, you know. It, it, because I think, the, I think the I think the answer to your question there is a lot of people aren't, but there it is the future for Cisco. It feels that it has to get the product out there. Well, they're asking they're asking for some of the capabilities it it does. Whether they actually want that particular yeah. product is a different thing. So, or, a company that I work with, uh, you know, we we have a. Catalyst 6500 LAN, dozens and dozens of these boxes. Hold on, um, Jeremy. You, you working with me? What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the new hire. You didn't, didn't get the memo, right? All right. No. Okay. But, but yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you're, you give me another data point because uh, they meet all of the requirements of what we're trying to do. They're one gigabit to the LAN, you know, to the desktop. They have, um, I think they have 10 gig uplinks. It doesn't much matter, right? The bandwidth needs are just so so little that what difference does it make? Um, but effectively, Cisco's telling me, you can't have that anymore. You know, we, mm. we marked those end of life last year or next year. It depends on what, what exactly your components are. Um, your next step is to go to you know, 
effectively, it's a step on the path to SD access. And you don't have to go to SD access, but you pretty much have to buy the hardware that um, that can run SD access. And, and you're going to deal with the growing pains of being in, you know, new platforms with new code and frequent code upgrades and, you know, the, the risks associated. So, so I think that. the right way to look at this is there's a difference between what customers want and what vendors need yes. for their bottom yes. line. So this is one of these situations where uh, when I talk about competency, I'm talking about exactly what I'm about to talk about now. Vendors make products that reflect themselves and their needs to do things with shareholders. So the big driver behind SD Campus, in my opinion, is multi-pronged. It's not one thing, it's multiple things. So one is Cisco has told shareholders that it will have um, recurring revenue and it will do that through software licensing. So it's out there going to all the customers and saying to meet that obligation that it made, it has to go and resell all the campus products with software licenses so that it gets recurring revenue to meet its goals or its commitments to its shareholders. That's one thing. Now, that has nothing to do with customers whatsoever, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that Cisco's competitors, in particular Arista, are moving in on the campus space. And Cisco's been sort of fat and happy in the campus space for the better part of 15 years. It just waits for the people's equipment to rot and eventually they come back and buy new stuff and Cisco gets that revenue. They get all that money for selling the same old stuff, the same silicon, the same It's software. almost almost a subscription model because they were the almost, one place yeah. to go, yeah. But now all of a sudden Arista's proven that its business model is to be uh, – I believe that Arista's business model is pretty sound because what Arista does is it does Cisco better than Cisco. Now, we could argue about how that works, but that's not the forum I want to get into here. And Arista's saying – to get growth, we have to go into the campus. And Cisco saw that coming and suddenly it's attacking the campus before it starts losing customers, before the attrition rate. So it's out there with its sales force. Again, not a customer-led initiative, although Cisco calls it that, not a customer innovation. There certainly are customers out there asking for changes in the network because they want to see this, um, you know, this Google uh, type of model for zero perimeter security there should be no zero trust networking and you can't do that with a fixed perimeter even if you you know replace all the switches and implement ice you need an overlay network over the top of the network to be able to handle that you can't do physical authentication so the move to that is a customer need you you could you need lisp and or some sort of overlay network in the campus to be able to do um, zero trust networking where all users and all connectivity and that needs to unify the wired and the wireless businesses it also needs to unify the security businesses because that all needs to be one thing and cisco's in my opinion has made a move to get there ahead of arista and juniper both of them are attacking the campus so you know juniper's gone out and bought a wi-fi company it's doing deals with identity management companies uh, arista's bought a wireless company it's doing deals with identity management companies to build these bundles for the campus that's the innovation that people are asking for they want to increase the security of the campus they see the ransomware and the services but there's an awful lot of people out there going like eh so your competency has to be, can you evaluate why this vendor's on your doorstep trying to flog this technology to you and understand there are, there's a technology reason why you might buy it, but there's also a business reason why that company is selling it to you. And I wonder how many people have thought about those perspectives. I do, I do worry sometimes that the perception, especially around SDN, is that the perception that management may have of it is that it's a magic button that you push that solves all your problems. So then the pitches from your Cisco's, et cetera, will seem quite appealing without necessarily fully understanding the implications of what this will mean. I'm on board with kind of where things are going. I, I'd like the simplification of the underlay and put the complexity in the overlay. You know, SD access is a compelling solution, right? And, and I'm sure the other vendors have, have an interesting way to get there as well. Um, I just don't want to be first. Right. <laughs> I'm I'm happy to let many many others figure out how uh, you know how to get through that that migration process and iron out the bugs before I bring you know kind of a, a an old school you know insurance type business into that world. There, there's just no but reason to be first. The only the only other thing that sort of doesn't feel quite right with is the idea. I guess where I think it felt like SDM was coming from the you know the original kind of concept of it of being kind of completely abstracted from hardware you know it could run on anything uh, so that you know the complexity and everything was in the software to what it is now where it's not quite separate 
and, and as you were talking about how the you know all the APIs and things are not they're quite sort of still tied in to your specific vendors, it feels like it should be going the other way that we should give it to a point where an abstraction layer is easy because mm. everything's open and and it shouldn't matter having a multi-vendor environment shouldn't matter because. It's the software, not the hardware. Can I deviate here and just throw something at you? I think that we need to stop thinking about SDN controller to device interoperability. I think the bundle of SDN software to the device is always going to be bundled. You're not going to be able to take a Cisco device and snap it into a Juniper Contrail. Where I think the interoperability needs to happen is when Contrail talks to ACI sideways or when your SD-WAN VeloCloud talks to your... um, uh, Arista Cloud Vision. You, you mean controller to controller specifically, Greg? So no, no SDN to rule them all, but SDN federation yeah. is what I call it. So you, it's it. The standards will be in the SDN controllers between each other, so that they can share mm-hmm. um, configuration or share tasks or share intent. You know, I'm trying to weld this. Um, SD-WAN segment to this data center segment. And yes, I might be running brand A in the SD-WAN and brand B in the data center, but the needs the controllers need to work together to make that happen. Now that SDN federation idea also works in the data center. Maybe over here in the data center, if you're big enough, this part's a, you know, a Juniper Contrail and this part over here is an Arista Cloud Vision. And the two controllers should work together to stitch it up. And even we, we see some of that today with NSX. So some of that is happening, but yeah, in limited NSX can work with you know, we'll interoperate with ACI and uh, VMware um, and Dell just partnered to do an underlay orchestration tool. They announced it at uh, VMworld uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, so I would say that you shouldn't, we should stop thinking about device interoperability. The fact that you've got a Cisco Edge device or a Dell ON Edge device, it's, it's not that because it's the operating system on the device that defines the interoperability. And that operating system will always talk to a guaranteed controller. Let's pause the podcast for a moment to tell you about today's sponsor, Thousand Eyes. You like it or not, your organization is embracing the cloud, and that might be great for the business, but for network architects and IT ops teams, it can be a service delivery nightmare. Why? Well, you're depending on cloud providers, ISPs, and third-party apps for business-critical services. And even though you don't control those networks, you do on the service delivery, which means if performance is bad, people are going to come looking for you. And this is where Thousand Eyes can help. You can take advantage of Thousand Eyes agents across the cloud within your enterprise all the way down to the endpoint. These agents actively monitor network behavior and topologies and how they affect application performance. With Thousand Eyes, you can correlate multiple layers of performance data from L2 to L7, including BGP routing and DNS, to quickly identify problem areas and dramatically reduce your mean time to repair. You can pinpoint the root cause of device faults, congestion, Wi-Fi quality, DDoS attacks, and more. And you don't have to keep all this intelligence to yourself. You can easily share events, metrics, and dashboards with your vendors and customers so that you can collaborate to resolve problems faster. Now, Thousand Eyes also aggregates anonymized real-time data from a collective data set so they can generate insights about large-scale issues across the internet, including their severity and breadth, as well as likely root cause. Now, if all that sounds good to you, here's a special offer for Packet Pushers listeners. Try Thousand Eyes for free at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. And while you're there, get yourself a free Thousand Eyes t-shirt. That's thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. Manage every network like it's your own. Thousand Eyes. Thrive in a connected world. And now, back to the podcast. Flipping this idea, Greg, what you're saying, and I get your point here, um, but flipping that back around to engineers with skill sets, there is no engineer that's going to have to ever have a clue as to how two controllers talk. Some other developer, a software engineer, will have written that integration between those controllers, and the job of the engineer then is design. Um, And it's a I think that's a very different discipline that we're getting into at that point versus I understand protocols and how they work. It can stitch all these things together. It's more, I bought this software package. This is going to integrate these two controllers that deal with this SDN uh, on these two different domains. I've got and integrate them into some kind of a whole. It, speaking back to the, the, the core premise of this show, why network is evol- networking is evolving slowly it goes back to, well, that's not a standard approach that I can take, integration between two controllers. I do agree with you that I think that is important and is very likely the way we're going to see some sales get made and some systems get deployed in the future, but it will not be the ubiquitous 
um, thing that we're used to seeing. It used to be, if you knew Cisco, man, you could pick up those skills and move them anywhere. Um, mm. If you understood different routing protocols, if you understood layer two and spanning tree and VLANs well, those were, again, very portable. And even if you cut your teeth on Cisco, you could pretty much pick up and use those skills somewhere else. I don't think that's true anymore, or it's becoming less true as we go forward in the complexity of these systems and the automation and controller-ness of these systems begins mm. to take hold. Yeah, I, I do agree with that in the sense that uh, you don't need to know spanning tree anymore because a lot of that's done for you by an mm -hmm. SDN controller, but you have new skills. The question in my mind is, will the vendors do it or will you do it yourself? So will you write an app on top of a controller to stitch them together in some way or will you just uh, use that to do, uh, I call it my 80-20 or 90-10. I think... I think the vendors are already doing it. That That's the answer. I think the, the, the companies that do it, it's so rare that you've got a company doing it, I think, that by and large, you're buying a canned solution that the vendor's done for you. Yeah, because if you're, if you're engineers and your teams are geared up to do that kind of thing, then they're probably able to write enough uh, automation tools or be able to run them themselves. They will be using open source more likely than having to rely on a vendor to package it up for them. Yeah, I mean, the the solution to that problem today, even for you know, and, and I'm more familiar with Cisco solutions, but even for Cisco, if you want to go SD access to ACI, uh, you're dropping back to OSPF or BGP right now. Um, mm. You know, so the the inter vendor solutions are are certainly going to be the same right now. Um, gosh, I, I imagine we're five years away from being able to actually have those two clouds talk if they're different vendors cisco you know single vendors will be sorry yes i'm i'm very much a five-year okay i think you know equally i think today people who are doing ansible that's not a that's not a long-term skill i think in because ansible is so limited to just almost when i'd look around at multi-cloud orchestration and i ask myself how many people are using orchestration ansible orchestration outside of it outside of networking the answer is very small most people are using terraform to do uh, infrastructure automation. Now, I'm not going to make it a commentary on the, the difference between the two, but if I was planning a career, I wouldn't get overly committed to Ansible at this point. I would get some skills, but I wouldn't deep dive into it like coming off the 25-foot uh, diving board. I'd be off the five, you know, off the one-meter diving board and having enough because I don't think it will sustain. But it, it, it is a, a method to kind of get your head around the different way of working. Mm. Yes. Yeah. It's a transition point, but there's, you know, do some early stuff on Ansible, but ask yourself whether you want to dive in deep. Don't throw yourself in wholeheartedly to Ansible. I would advise people to be very cautious about how much time they invest in technologies right now, because as as you said earlier, we don't know what technologies are going to understand. Mm. We're in the middle of an, un there's a broad business trend that everything gets unbundled. We break the bundle apart, a transition happens and the bundle gets broken up and then the bundle rebundles back. So in that taxonomy I, I drew up, you can see the unbundling and then the rebundling as things expand and then stabilize. So the transition from, you know, Apple Talk, IPX, Banyan Vines, SNA protocols was we unbundled all that and then stabilized then on IP. But IP and Ethernet became the bundle and Token Ring and ArcNet and FIDI all went away. So we unbundled all of that and then we rebundled all back together and then we all moved on to the internet we threw away the private where, private idea, the private networking idea, and we've all embraced the internet as a public permissionless type of environment to operate in and so on and so forth. So right now, as we go into the dynamic virtualization phase, my sixth generation of networking, if you believe that, the bundling is happening around software-driven overlays and micro-segmentation and virtual appliances, but we don't actually know what the final bundle will look like. Let me try and expand that a little bit further. Two years ago, we were talking about SD-WAN in terms of failover of bandwidth, the ability to use multiple types of bandwidth, and the ability to get some telemetry and some zero-touch provisioning. Now, when we talk to SD-WAN companies, they're talking about, we do full security scanning, we support scanning in the cloud of all content, we support full branch in a box, we can do, and, and all the connectivity stuff, but that's, that's, not, that's not interesting anymore. Right, And so the bundling isn't even finished in SD-WAN because what we're seeing is the security part bundled on top of the SD-WAN appliance. And in some cases, we're seeing SD-WAN vendors just completely left behind because they're not able to bundle security into their SD-WAN products like other companies are. 
I think we can kind of wrap up this podcast going around the table and, and discussing a question that follows on what you were just saying here, Greg. And that is, I think a theme that we've all agreed agreed to roughly or brought up in one way or another is that it feels like we're in a transition phase in networking right now. And so if we are, if we agree that that's true, first of all, do you agree that we are in a transition phase? And if so, what are we transitioning to? Does it seem like there's a new normal that's coming that we can all be looking forward to you know, in some time frame? Yeah, if, if Greg or I or Emma or, or you knew the answer to that one, <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we've been in pretty good shape. I want to say, why do you think I'm in podcasting here? Today? Yeah, we canceled this podcast right now. We have a four-person company. Uh, <laughs> you, actually, if you guys can come up with an answer, that'd be sweet because I'm writing the strategy document right now. So, yeah, yeah. It, gets, it gets a bit woolly. So we just have to <laughs> Sorry, wait till Emma's done writing. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll send uh, it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I think I think the things that I want to see is people stop being didactic or stop being absolutist. When we do our designs, we tend to say this, 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 and this, and we make these hard commitments and go back to management and say this is where I think we need to write our strategies to be much more DevOps, much more fluid, much more. I want to say things. I'm like, going for like service focus in a way, so that yes. you know it's it's the services we're providing, and it's then it's open as to exactly what solution will work for that but go back to those basics go back to what do we actually need to provide what does it need to do and then go and do the assessment rather than kind of buying into a, a product and thinking that will solve problems it's like trying to look at it from that perspective which is and that's interesting because we've never been able to define services without defining the hardware available to us. We've always been limited. It's, it's tricky, especially coming from an engineering background. It's hard to abstract mm. yourself from that, <laughs> from the tech, but that's, that's exactly what I think we have to do. And I think that will, I think that will make this easier to try and not, like you say, to be tied into very specific things. Um, yeah, you're not you're not writing a spec sheet that says, and we are going to have a 40, 100 gig backbone. You're writing a spec sheet that says, you know, we'll have the bandwidth required for the business, something more general that gives you yeah, the flexibility. Yeah, and, and, and with the concepts of well, that's for now and maybe in the, like in the next couple of years, but also put it, keeping an eye on the concept of having things like bandwidth on demand in five years' time. Mm -hmm. Exactly how we might do that. I'm not going to say now because I think that, would, like you say, it would be foolish just to mm. back something and say, right, well, definitely it'll be that technology because in five years time, something else, as we're as we're feeling like we're in a transient phase, that that transition phase, that some things will kind of come out in the wash, will come to the forefront and be the agreed standards or the most accepted standards of of, of achieving these things. That so then we can say, right, well, that's the one for us, you know, rather than picking it now. Um, one thing that might be helpful uh, mm -hmm. that I did for a company once was I drew the adoption curve, you know, early adopters, late adopters, and the and the mass market. And you talk about the and some of the Gartner life cycle stuff can be interesting. And what you can say is our goal is to be here on this curve. Yeah. And point at that and say we're looking for technologies that are not in the early adopter phase that would be broadly accepted as being stable. Well, go back to what Jeremy was saying. He doesn't want to rush into uh, SD Campus because it's too early. I agree, by the way. I think it's far too early. SD Campus is five years away. But to keep an eye on or out and maybe a hand into some of these emerging things. So looking to be able to maybe play with them on the side in little silos or little potential greenfield uh, deployments so that you can trial things out, but without impacting the wider business, I think would be useful as well. What about, what about cloud networking? How do you feel, you know, how do you embrace multi-cloud or hybrid cloud in this environment i mean we've talked a lot about on-premise stuff here today really i think i think to do well you, it's hybrid isn't it it's both it's on-prem uh so you start there yeah you start to because obviously if the cloud networking the approach is different it's excluding what tech it is underneath the structure and the processes are different so you could start that on-prem have a little on-prem kind of cloud style environment where you're testing those things out. And then once you've grasped those, once you're kind of competent and feeling equipped with those, then also the hybrid element can kind of come in. So then you can actually, you know, your work, you get to the point where you don't care where your workloads are. They could be on-prem, on-site, off-site, 
that's the cloud wherever but mm. i think it's i think it's a progressive roadmap that you have to sort of take those steps to get there yeah, rather than just I'm, throwing everything out yeah maybe i'm in a in a different spot in different organizations but nobody's ever asked me if i want to put something in aws right or or at Google Cloud or, or Azure, they they tell me we're putting something at AWS. <laughs> Build me a network that supports it. Mm. Uh, yeah. That's yeah, that, when I come in, right? Yeah. Uh, I I don't I don't tell the corporation or the organization to to start moving stuff to a cloud. So. No, no. I mean, to be honest, that that is usually the way it happens as well. It's happening. So, well, to try and reduce shadow IT or to say, well, hold on, well, the reason they're doing that is because we're not providing a service they want, so what's, let's fix our service so they wouldn't need to do it. If yeah. Good point, Emma. Uh, yeah, actually, the, the truth of it is probably that they tell me they already put stuff in AWS and they can't get to it or yeah, exactly. they want to get to it better. <laughs> so it's really just expensive. You, just to give you the other side, I said exactly what you said, Jeremy, to three vendors this week in various off-the-record discussions, and they said all of our customers are doing something in the cloud and they're asking us for it. And I'm like, hang on, the people I'm talking to, I don't know, like the number of people asking me to do hybrid cloud and multi-cloud, I can probably count on one hand, which is unusual because normally we hear from people about, or I would hear about people doing it. Is that because people doing the cloud aren't talking about it? Or is it, I don't know. Just So like- it's interesting. I, I work with a company that's doing multi-cloud, but it has practically nothing to do with the drivers that that we hear about, right? Uh, so the drivers we hear about are, well, they want redundancy or resiliency or, or you know, they want to not be locked into one vendor. Uh, the company I'm working with, they, they do it based on application and it's mostly uh, like a path of least resistance, right? Um, so it was AWS first for, for various things that AWS does really well, but completely different applications are being put at Azure because they do other things, you know, equal, well, better, I suppose, than AWS. I'm sure Microsoft-related um, OS-type things or workloads, or, or maybe it's about programming languages. I'm not that sure. But I, I don't, I've don't. i not worked with anybody who puts the same application at more than one oh. cloud vendor. Yeah, I, I actually wrote something on this this morning, and somebody said, I want multi-cloud, that is the ability to, because for the same reasons that I want to be able to take my phone from one telco to another. And I get the sentiment what I also don't get is the cost of switching handsets from one carrier to another is nearly zero because your phone, you know, your voice still works, your SMS still works, your number goes with you. There's zero cost of switching effectively. Whereas if I switch from AWS to Azure, all the language is different. The technologies are different. They don't have the same features. They don't have the same functions. Your code probably doesn't run on both of them, so you have to start running them in containers. Once you've got a container, you've got a container platform that you have to orchestrate. Once you've got a container platform, you need a whole new networking strategy just to connect the containers together. Let alone data gravity. Data portability, data gravity, all Mm -hmm. these. And it's just like, I don't... I'm like you, Jeremy. I think people haven't thought it through. But I wonder solve one problem and create three new ones right but everybody's asking for it according to the vendors apparently it's in every tender and every sales call is how do you do multi-cloud and the customers are saying to the vendors no we must have it and i wonder how many customers are just saying that and how many customers are actually doing it because i don't actually have a good sell oh it goes back to a point we made earlier sometimes vendors hear a problem and they create a product and now they got to flog it they got to get it out the door and sell the thing and try to build momentum and if that doesn't work they can (laughs) hurry up and move on to the next thing Yeah, yeah, it's like blockchain. Blockchain is a solution <laughs> for a problem. So there's plenty of salespeople out there selling it. That doesn't a problem that needs solving. <laughs> my my conversations with people have been exactly the same. Yeah, we put this in Azure because it happens to work best for this particular application. Very often tied back to Windows and Windows Server kind of infrastructure challenges, uh, and with this other things in AWS. But I I neither have I heard about. We're taking the same app and distributing it ap- across multiple clouds. No, I don't hear that operation. That seems too challenging for most folks. So, you know, that multi-cloud connectivity problem is um, solved in a lot of cases, I think, just by colos with direct connects and, you know, a common mm-hmm. hub uh, in which to route between. I think a lot of it's just solved with VMware. So once you're virtualized and you've got better than vSphere, like vSphere is not much of a cloud orchestration platform. But once you start applying some some of the SDDC stuff and some of the NSX, you're pretty close. Mm. How much further do you really need to get? 
Well, all right, folks, I think we have beat this conversation to death today, because sadly, we have no answers. And, and Jeremy, as you said, if we did, boy, we, we, we four could go off and form a consultancy and go make some big money sure. with, uh, with our amazing answers. But uh, so, so let's go around the table and just, uh, if we want folks to follow us, find us on the internet, read our blogs, we can tell folks about those things. Uh, Jeremy, starting with you. Sure. I'm uh, on, on the web. At, uh, I still have an actual website. I think I might be the last one. Um, jeremyphilippin.com uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at jphilippin those are probably the best ways to reach me it's very sad the demise of blogging I really want people to come back I want that to come back mm. Emma, uh, how about you? First of all, thank you for being uh, a first-time guest to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. Lovely to have your insights. And can people find you on the internet somewhere? So I'm sorry, Greg, I, I don't blog yet. Um, <laughs> uh, I do have a Twitter account that I use fairly regularly. Um, so it's mskg, the I is a one. Um, don't ask. It's, it's you know, a, Twitter, a handle is for life. And so <laughs> there's some legacy stuff in there, but never mind. But that's the easiest way to, to kind of contact me. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Emma. And uh, Greg, since we're going around the table for completeness, how about you? Uh, I've uh, st- moved my blogging over to Ignition, which is part of our membership platform. So you will uh, need to be uh, a paid up subscriber to access it. I'm sort of shifting it around a little bit, playing with new ways or new ideas on how I can make that content work for people. So uh, if you remember, let us know, but it is going to be the platform for us going forward. We are quite committed to making that something unique and interesting, but we're still working out quite what that would be. So bear yeah. With- yeah, you're going to get a lot of curated content from us on Ignition, a lot of more conversations we're having, and templates being built in the background uh, that's going to turn into more publishing going forward. I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. Uh, if you want to know more about me, ethancbanks.com is my uh, blog, personal. And then, of course, as Greg was saying, for um, for those of you who want the deep, deep, deepest stuff we you can give you here at Packet Pushers, ignition.packetpushers.net, where you can be a member, 99 bucks a year. And if, hey, 99 bucks a year sounds like, ah, screw that, you guys, I can get stuff for free. Well, you're right. Just go to packetpushers.net. There's over a thousand other episodes across our podcast network there. And that's all free. Our community blog is there, news feeds and so on. And you can harass us at Packet Pushers on Twitter and we're on LinkedIn and uh, so on. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.